Well, good morning. If you've got your Bible, make your way to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles on your way in, it's on page 976. And feel free to keep that Bible. That's our gift to you as a church. Uh, we are kicking off a new sermon series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, this sermon series is going to take us all the way through the rest of the fall up to Advent and the Christmas season. Uh, and Ephesians is a book about the church. More than probably any other book in the New Testament, Ephesians is focused on uh, who and what the church is and what our life together in and as the church is supposed to look like. And so uh, we're preaching the, the book of Ephesians this fall to help uh, relay some of those foundations as we prepare to move into our new building, to relay those foundations of who we're called to be as a church, what God would have us to do, uh, and what that is going to look like. Because when Jesus saves us, he does not just save us into the ether. He does not save us into the abstract. He saves us into his body. He saves us into the church. And so what does that mean for us? What's that supposed to look like and play out in in our lives? Let's uh, start finding out. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to read the first 14 verses, starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today. It speaks to us like this. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of of his glory. Now, let's pray for God's help on our time together. God, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious passage in Ephesians 1, just laying out the, the truths and the goodness of what you've done for us in the gospel and all that you've done to redeem us and save us. God, would you give us ears to hear? Would you open up our eyes? Would you open up our hearts to receive these truths and believe them and, and live in light of them? God, I pray that, that just as you've lavished grace on us in salvation, you would lavish understanding on, uh, on us right now of that salvation. God, I pray that we would walk out of here this morning overwhelmed, feeling like we can barely walk out of here because we've been so loved and we've been so graced by you in salvation. God, please, would this be 
the, the truths that you would use to comfort and encourage and strengthen and give stability to men and women in this room who are anxious about their salvation, anxious about their status with you. God, would you comfort them with the truths of your word in this moment? God, I pray these truths would be uh, like a match that lights a fire in our heart and stirs us up for you so that we would do just what you say here, that, that these things would be done to the praise of your glorious grace. Would you help us to do that? I pray that you would. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, we just read what is probably the densest and most theologically rich passage in the entire New Testament. Uh, in Greek, it is one long sentence. Verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence uh, with over 200 words, and it slaps, as the kids say. Like, it's incredible. Uh, I'm going to be like a two-year-old trying to play Bach or Mozart, uh, trying to describe the glories of God and his salvation here. I mean, there's so much here. Obviously, we could spend weeks on this passage and, and not get to the depths of all that God has to say to us in this passage, but uh, we're just taking this one week because for all of its depth and richness, this is one big thought, one big sentence, and I, I believe the force of it is meant to hit us all at once. And so uh, here's what I want to do. I want to just real quickly introduce you to the book of Ephesians, and I want to give you some handles to hold on to as we walk uh, through this passage together. And so first, the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians was a circular letter, meaning that Paul wrote it to go first to the church in Ephesus and then to be passed around to other churches in other cities uh, around Ephesus. Probably a lot of the cities and churches that are listed in the book of Revelation when the letters to the seven churches are written uh, in the book of Revelation. And because it was a circular letter, uh, Paul takes a little bit different of an approach than he does in some of his other letters. He's not writing so much to address a specific problem and issue the Ephesian church is facing. Instead, he's writing a more general letter to just lay out a very clear picture of what the gospel is and what the gospel creates, the church. The gospel creates the church, and again, Paul is going to focus on that new humanity and community in the church that the gospel creates. Uh, the first three chapters are going to be focused on what the gospel is and what God has done to save us and to create this new humanity in the church, and then the last three chapters are going to be focused on how we live in response to that, how we walk out that salvation in our life together as a church. And so, that's the book. Uh, let's turn next to this passage. Three points. Here's how we'll walk through it together this morning. Uh, we should praise God for choosing and predestining us in Jesus. We should praise God for adopting, uh, for redeeming us and revealing himself to us in Jesus. And we should praise God for adopting and sealing us in Jesus. Uh, first, we should praise God for choosing and predestining us in Jesus. Uh, Paul's going to talk a whole lot about the church in this letter, but before he does that, he wants to start first with, with what creates the church, the gospel. And so in verse 3, he begins by saying that, that God is to be blessed, God's worthy of praise, and, and this sets the tone for everything he's about to say in this passage, because Paul is not arguing here, he's not lecturing, he's not debating, God, he is praising God, he's saying God's worthy of our praise, God is to be blessed, why? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because he's given us in Jesus everything that we need. 
And in verse 4, Paul begins to list off some of these spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus. And the first that he lists off is that we've been chosen and predestined in Jesus. And, and I know for some of us, when we read those words in the passage, you had antennas go up, but, but here's what I want to lay out for you. Uh, these are not bad words. These are good words. These are Bible words, and, and you've got to do something with them. Like, every Christian should believe in some form of election and predestination because right here in Ephesians 1, God, Paul says God chose, he elected and predestined us for salvation, to be adopted as his sons. And so you've got to do something with it, but with that said, uh, there are other legitimate interpretations than the one I'm about to put forward here, and if you don't land in the same place that I and the other elders land in on this, that, that's really okay. We can disagree on this and still be brothers and sisters together here uh, in the church, but uh, I do want to lay out for you what we believe Paul is teaching here, because again, Paul's He's not lecturing, he's not arguing, he's not debating, he's praising God, saying God is worthy of praise for this. And I really believe the truths of election and predestination are like a match that can light a fire in your heart, and I want you to have the same experience of praise that Paul does here. Because Paul is saying that in eternity past, before God created you, before God even created the world, God chose you, elected you for salvation. He predestined you. He determined your destiny beforehand, and that destiny is to be one of his children. Now, some people will say, they'll read these words and say that what these words mean is that God looked down the halls of time, as it were, and saw who was going to choose him, and then based on our choice of him, in response to that, he chooses and predestines us. And so we choose first, God chooses second, and his choice of us is dependent on our choice of him. But that's just not the way the Bible describes things. Ephesians 2 is going to tell us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead people don't make decisions. You've got to be made alive first going to tell us that even the faith we had to respond to the gospel and believe in Jesus, that it's a gift from God, it is not something we worked up on our own. Romans 3 says that left to ourselves, no one seeks after God, no one does what is good, not even one. And so if God was going to elect and predestine us based on who was going to choose him, nobody would be saved. Look, you do make a choice. You are not a robot, but your choice does not come first. God's does. And his choice of you is determinative of your choice of him. Your choice of him flows from his choice of you. God did not choose you because he saw that you were going to have faith or because he thought you were going to be really awesome or he saw you had a lot of potential or he really wanted, thought he could use you on his team. God chose you because he is gracious. God's election of us, his choice of us is unconditional. It's not based on, it's not conditioned on anything we were going to do or be or the faith we are going to have. It's not because we were going to be good. God chose us because he is good. And look, this is so securing because if election was conditional, if, it was, if God's love for you and his choice of you was based on your faith in him and the choice you were going to make for him or something you were going to do or be, you realize God's love for you is not free, right? If, if, if his choice of you is dependent on your choice of him and you uh, keeping yourself in the faith and, and following him, what happens when you're struggling with that? 
What happens on days when your faith starts to waver? And you're going to feel like you've lost God's love. You're going to feel like you've put your status with him in jeopardy because it's dependent on you. You're going to be constantly anxious, wondering, have I believed hard enough to keep myself in the grace of God? Have I done good enough to keep myself in the grace of God? But if election is unconditional and God chose you not based on anything you were going to do or be or not based because you were going to believe in him, then you are absolutely secure. You didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. And so there's nothing that you can do to lose it. Uh, Election means that if you are a Christian, you are not a Christian because you were smarter than others, because you were better than others, because you were more devoted than others, because you figured it out where other people didn't. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian because of God, not because of you. God wanted you to be his child. Uh, I got, and Braylon and I got engaged uh, September of 2016 during my senior year of college, but uh, I went to talk to her dad the month before that and get his blessing, and as soon as I got that, I went out almost immediately and bought uh, her engagement ring, and so I had that engagement ring for about a month uh, before I proposed to her without her knowing about it. And her best friend, Caitlin, also had a very serious boyfriend at the time. And so uh, I got her boyfriend, Trent, to text Braylon and say, hey, uh, a few weeks from now, on this Friday, I'm going to be proposing to Caitlin in y'all's hometown, and I want you and Ryan to come and take pictures of it for us. Uh, But really what was going to happen is I was going to be proposing to Braylon, and they were going to take pictures of it uh, for us instead. And so the week that this was going to happen, uh, we would take walks around campus at night and talk, and Braylon just could not stop talking about, man, she's just so excited because Caitlin is going to be so surprised. She has no idea that this is going to happen. She's going to be so shocked. Uh, She is going to love the ring that Trent got her, which was a picture he pulled off of Google. Uh, And And she's just on and on about, I just can't believe. She has no idea. And, you know, the whole time I'm just like, yeah, I know. She has no idea. It is so crazy. Just thinking the whole time, like, oh, my gosh, if you only knew uh, what is going to happen here. And so uh, I, I was even more excited than Braylon was because I had all this joy and anticipation of knowing what was actually going to happen and knowing that that in time I was going to get to reveal this gift to her and share that it was actually me who was proposing to her uh, and not uh, Trent proposing to Caitlin. And so uh, on the day that I proposed to Braylon, as much as she enjoyed it, I know that I enjoyed it more because, again, I had all that anticipation and delight and joy of getting to hide that gift and then reveal it uh, at that point of time and finally get to reveal that and share that gift with her Uh, on the day that we got engaged. And what's amazing to me is that what Paul is saying here is that all the anticipation and joy and delight that I felt in waiting to give that gift to Braylon, that that was just a dim shadow of what happens with God's salvation of us. Listen, this was not a mechanical transaction where God just pulled some levers to get more workers in his factory No, the passage says God predestined us in love. He predestined us because he loves us. And he predestined us not to be his employees, but to be his children, to be adopted as 
his sons and daughters. Paul is saying that in eternity past, before God ever created the world, when God was just perfectly enjoying himself in the Trinity, God was looking forward to the day when he was going to adopt and save you and me. It's as if God was just brimming with delight, uh, excited with delight, and could not wait for the day when he was going to open up our eyes to his grace, when he was going to awaken our hearts to respond to the gospel, when he was going to unite us to Jesus and save us. It's as if God just cannot wait to reveal this gift to us and bring us all the way home, just like I could not wait to reveal this gift to Braylon and take a further step towards us being married. In verse 5, Paul says that God did this according to the purpose of his will, meaning God chose to do this. God wanted to do this. Nobody forced his hand. Nobody talked him into it. Nobody made him do this. Election means that God saw you, all of you, with eyes wide open, all the ways you were going to sin, all the ways you were going to rebel, all the ways you were not going to choose him, and in spite of all of that, said, him, I want him, her, I want her to be a part of my family. Election means you have been eternally loved by God, that God loved you before there was even a you to love, and before you ever even took a breath, God had planned it out and secured it to make you his own. Like, how could you get any more secure than that. And we should praise God for that. We should praise God that he's chosen and predestined us in Jesus. But, but Paul is not done there. Paul's really just getting started. He, he tells us next that we should also praise God for redeeming us and revealing himself to us in Jesus. Because in verse 7, he says that in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, re- redemption and purchase through what Jesus has done. Redemption is an Uh, an economic word, and it means to buy something back out of captivity. Uh, For example, imagine you uh, hit some tough times financially, uh, times that are tough enough that you've got to start making some decisions. And so you're in between paychecks, and you need some money fast, and so you decide that you're going to pawn off some of your expensive jewelry uh, at the pawn shop. And so you pawn off that expensive jewelry to get a loan, and, and you pawn it off as collateral, And the expectation is that if you want your jewelry back, you've got to pay the price of that loan plus interest before the end of that loan period is up, whether it's one month or three months or whatever it might be. And and you have to pay it back and buy it back because you don't own that anymore. Once you pawn off that jewelry, ownership of it transfers over to the pawnbroker. He owns it. And if you don't pay off the the price of your loan and and pay the price to buy back that jewelry before the loan period is over, uh, then the the pawn shop broker can can sell your item to to recoup some of that cost of the money that he loaned out to you. But if you do pay back uh, the, the loan and the interest that's accrued on the loan in full before the loan period is over, what are you doing? You're not just buying that jewelry, you're redeeming it. You are buying it back, freeing it from the captivity of the pawnbroker, transferring ownership of it from the pawnbroker back over to you. You are redeeming it, and this is what God does for us in salvation. We had freely sold ourselves into sin. We'd freely enslaved ourselves to it, so God 
redeems us. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he purchases us, he pays the price for our sins, and he buys us back out of captivity. He redeems us, he forgives all of our sins, as the passage says, and he sets us free from the power of sin so that we don't have to walk in it any longer. Just like the Israelites, once God redeemed them out of slavery to Egypt, you don't have to serve sin anymore. You don't have to walk in it. You don't have to go back to Egypt because sin does not own you any longer. God does. God's redemption is powerful. Verse 7 says that he's redeemed us according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in Jesus. And lavished is such a great word. It's this sense of overwhelming, over-the-top, ridiculous generosity. Lavished would be like your AC unit at your house breaking and someone saying, well, I, I won't just pay to fix the AC unit at your house and I won't just pay to buy you a new AC unit. Why don't I just buy you a whole new house instead? Like anything less is not going to be good enough. Lavish is that sort of over-the-top, don't you think that's a little bit much, ridiculous sort of generosity. This is what God does for us in Jesus. We needed forgiveness of sins, but God doesn't just give us that. He unites us to Jesus, and in Jesus, we have full forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future. We have acceptance and righteousness before God because of Jesus. We are adopted into God's family so that our relationship with God is no longer that we just have God as our judge or our boss or our employee, but as our Father. God lavishes grace on us in Jesus. He goes above and beyond. To quote Eugene Peterson, he says, in matters of God's grace, hyperboles are understatements. And because that's not all that God has lavished on us, he says in verse 9 that he's also made known to us the mystery of his will, the plan for the fullness of times. God has let you in on where the world and where your life and where the story is going, and where are they all going? Verse 10, this is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. The word for unite here uh, is this idea of summing things up, bringing everything to a conclusion and a fulfillment. Paul is saying that God is going to sum up everything in Jesus, that, that that's his great plan uh, for the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about movies. Uh, when are you satisfied with a movie's ending? Are you satisfied with a movie's ending if the, the credits start to roll and you walk out of the theater and you get in your car and on the drive home you're like, what did I just watch? I mean, what was that even about? Or, or, or no, you, you're not satisfied when that happens. You usually feel like you wasted your time and you got cheated when there isn't some form of a resolution to the movie. But when the movie wraps up all the loose plot threads that it had introduced earlier in the movie, when it gives you all the answers that you're able to say, okay, I see why that happened. That all makes sense now. When it illuminates a detail that maybe was introduced 30 minutes into the movie, and now you're able to see, okay, I see how that fits into the bigger story this movie was telling. That's a satisfying ending to a movie, and that's what God's doing in Jesus. Jesus is summing everything up. He's tying up all the loose threads. He's bringing everything to a beautiful conclusion and fulfillment. God made the world good. He made everything good, but we broke it and introduced sin and death into the world. But God does not quit on the world. He's going to redeem it. 
God is not just in the death and resurrection of Jesus redeeming and restoring us. He's redeeming and restoring all of creation so that the day is coming when you and I who are in Jesus will walk with God in a new heavens and a new earth free from corruption and sin, life the way it was always meant to be. Look, it's, it's so easy to get cynical when you look around at the world around you and how bad things can be and how difficult circumstances can get and the different sufferings and trials that we have to walk through in this life. But Paul is saying there is reason for hope because God is working out and accomplishing his plan. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. No one can stop him. And, and because of that... The day is coming for all who are in Jesus when every hurt in your life will get its answer, when, when every tear will be explained, when every loose thread in your life will be tied up and you'll be able to say, oh, that's what God was doing with that. I see it now. God was so good to bring us through that. But God is working out all things according to the purpose of his will. He's accomplishing his plan. And if you are in Jesus you're safe in the plan. Your life and your story has been caught up in Jesus' life and Jesus' story, and the end of your life and your story is to be summed up and fulfilled and perfected and redeemed in Him. And again, we should praise God for that. We should praise God that He's redeemed us and He's revealing Himself to us in Jesus. And then third, Paul tells us that we should praise God for adopting and sealing us in Jesus. Because in verse 11, he says, as part of this salvation, we've received an inheritance, which points back to our adoption, something Paul's already made explicit in the passage in verse 5. And, and of course, this is still the case today, but it was even more so the case back then. Uh, back in the day, when parents died, they would pass on all of their wealth and all of their property onto their children uh, as their inheritance. They would divide out their property and their wealth uh, amongst their children, they'd give the bulk of it to their firstborn son, including the family business, and their firstborn son would become the new patriarch, the new head of the family and leader of uh, the entire family. And so St. Augustine points out that during this time, uh, if a couple just had an only son, if that was the only child they have, in his words, they would rejoice all the more because they wouldn't have to divide out their inheritance amongst a bunch of his siblings and, and make him poorer. And he points out that's the exact opposite of what God does. God is not stingy. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, but he did not want to remain the one and only. Jesus came and he took on our flesh so that he could unite us to himself and make us his brothers and his sisters so that when God saves us, God makes us co-heirs with Jesus. We get to share in Jesus' inheritance. God shares his inheritance with us, and God is none the poorer for it because there are no limits to his riches, and he's lavish in his generosity. But that's not all that Paul says about this. He also says that, that when we heard the gospel and believed in Jesus, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. A seal is a mark of ownership and branding. It's a way to mark something out and say, this belongs to me and nobody else. Uh, I had some friends in seminary that got a customized branding seal stamp uh, for their books as a graduation gift. And so uh, you could fill it up with ink and stamp it on the inside cover of your book, and it would say, this belongs to the library of 
and it'd have your name or your initials. Uh, if you think I'm using this illustration because I'd like one of you to buy one of those for me, uh, I would not. I would never desecrate my books like that. Uh, but it's a clear mark of ownership and branding. Is it not? It's a way to say, this book belongs to me and nobody else. This is what God is doing when he sends the Holy Spirit to be a seal in our hearts. He is marking us out as his own and no one else's and saying, he belongs to me. She belongs to me. He's taking ownership and possession of us. But it's not just that because Paul keeps going. He says, not only have you been sealed with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has been given as a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The word for guarantee here, you can see this in the footnote if you've got an ESV, it's this sense of down payment, like a down payment on a house. And so think about the process of buying a house. Uh, Unless you're just really well off and you're able to put down a cash offer and buy a house in full, what do you do when you buy a house? You put down a down payment on the house. You pay a portion of the price of the house up front. And that down payment is a way for you to show the, the bank or whoever's loaning you the home loan and doing the mortgage that, that you're good for it, that you will have the ability over the next 15 to 30 years to pay off this house in full, that, that you're not going to default on your loan. It's a promise from you to them to say, I am going to pay for this house in full. And that's what God's doing when he sends the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment on our salvation, his promise that he is not going to fail to bring our salvation to completion and bring us all the way home. And we can trust God's promise because God never defaults on his loan. Listen, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But God keeps and he seals those he saves. He Uh, preserves them through faith to the end so that they continue to believe in Jesus. You are kept, Ephesians 1 is telling us, you are kept from first to last as a Christian. God planned and purposed your salvation. He chose and predestined you before you were even born, before the world was created. Jesus died to redeem you and purchase forgiveness and salvation and unite you to himself. And the Holy Spirit has been sent to be the seal and down payment and guarantee in our hearts to, so that we continue to believe in Jesus. We continue to grow in Jesus so that God does not fail to bring us all the way home. Like Paul is saying, he's praising God for his grace because God is working out his plan and we are utterly secure in his plan because our salvation has been planned out and accomplished from first to last. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit has planned out and worked out your salvation and he is going to bring it to pass. You could not be more secure. But if you're thinking like, yeah, all of this sounds great, but, but how do I know if, if I'm chosen and predestined and adopted and sealed? What if these promises aren't for me? Well, if that's where you're at right now, the answer the Bible gives you is never, well, make sure to try really hard and figure out whether or not you're chosen and predestined. The answer the Bible gives you is repent and believe in Jesus. Repent and believe in Jesus. Come to Jesus and you will know that you were chosen and predestined. The offer of the gospel is on the table for anybody who will receive it, who will come and believe and put their trust in Jesus. And so don't look to yourself of, have I done good enough? Am I proving that I'm chosen and predestined? Look to Jesus. Believe 
in Jesus and he will save you and you'll know you're chosen and predestined. Because there's something else in the passage that we've hit on a little bit but haven't talked about explicitly and it's really one of the major themes of the passage. In some ways, Ephesians 1 is like a song that's all chorus. Because if you noticed as we read through it, Paul uses some form of the phrase in him or in Christ ten times in verses 3 through 14. He, he cannot, he just keeps coming back to it and dropping it in. He can't get more than a few phrases away from it before he's got to remind us that every blessing we have of salvation, we only have it through and because of Jesus and in Jesus. This is one of the major themes of the book of Ephesians. In him, in Christ, Paul's going to use it over 40 times in just six short chapters in the book of Ephesians. This is the doctrine of union with Christ, that when God saves us, he he doesn't just forgive our sins, he unites us to Jesus so that we become one with Jesus, and this union means uh, a few important things. One, this union is legal. Uh, The the Bible compares it to a marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, that when God saves us, he unites us to Jesus, and and we become a part of of his bride. We are married to Jesus. Now, if, if you were dirt poor, no matter how dirt poor you are, if you marry somebody rich, what becomes true of you on that day? You become rich immediately because all that is theirs now belongs to you when you become one with them. It is shared with you because of that. And that's what happens with Jesus. When we are saved by Jesus, we trade our rags for his riches. He takes the rags of our sin and our rebellion, and he pays the price for it on the cross. And in return, he gives us the riches and blessings of salvation so that we are redeemed. We are fully forgiven of all of our sins and set free from the power of them. We're justified, counted righteous, and acceptable before God. We're sanctified. God begins to make us look more and more like Jesus, and one day we'll be glorified. Jesus will make us to look fully as he is, and we will be with him forever. We get all the blessings and benefits of salvation because salvation is not a bunch of things. Salvation is a person and we're united to him. And so this union with Jesus, it's legal, but it's also vital, life-giving, and the legal makes way for the vital. Think about an adoption. Uh, An adoption has to be legal for that adoption to be vital and life-giving for the child, does it not? Because you could bring a child into your home and encourage them to start acting like one of your children, But until that adoption process is finalized and they legally become your child, both you and they are always going to live with the fear and anxiety in the back of your head of knowing, like, they could be taken away. We could lose this relationship. They could be taken out of my home because they aren't actually your child. But once they become legally your child through the adoption process, now you are free, and they are free to enjoy that relationship of being your child without fear or anxiety of it ever being taken away. And again, the same thing is true of us in Jesus. We have the legal reality. Verse 5, we've been adopted as sons and daughters. We truly are God's children And now we're free to just live into the life-giving benefits of that relationship and reality without fear of of us ever losing it or it ever being taken away. Because once God adopts you, you can't be unadopted. You can't be taken out of his family. No one can snatch you out of his hand. 
And so this is the heart of the gospel here in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is telling us that God has removed every barrier that would stand in the way of us having a relationship with him, and he's brought us back into a relationship with him where we get to share in the life of God, where we are united to Jesus, and it's as if we get to, Jesus relives his life of sonship through us. We get to participate in the relationship that Jesus has with his Father by nature. We get to participate in that by grace. We become truly sons and daughters of God, with God the Father as our Father, Jesus as our brother, and the Holy Spirit as our friend, bringing us into this relationship and impressing it on our hearts that we really are a child of God. This is the good news of what Ephesians 1 is calling us to and what we just get to live into. And so what do we do with this? Well, I do want to be careful because as we read through the passage, did you notice any commands, anything that Paul tells us to do in this passage? No, you didn't because there wasn't one. There there are no commands in this passage. Salvation is God's work. Jonah 2 says salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not something we do. It's something God has done. And so our posture has to be fundamentally receptive. We don't work. We don't do. We receive the gift of salvation that God has accomplished through the empty hands of faith. And so any other response we might have to this passage, it has to start there recognizing this is a passage that's a whole lot about God and not a whole lot about you. And so we receive, we don't work for this gift of salvation. But three times in this passage, Paul says that God has done all of these things to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace, that God has worked out our salvation and brought us into his family so that ultimately we would praise him for his glorious grace. We praise him for his grace in choosing and predestining and forgiving and uniting and adopting and sealing and giving us a down payment and an inheritance in Jesus. And so we receive the work of salvation. We trust in Jesus. But, but one of the ways we grow in receiving that is by praising God for his grace here. And one of the ways you grow in praising God Uh, for his grace, is by talking about it with others here in the church. Uh, We are called to encourage one another in the gospel, with the gospel. So often, when our hearts are cold towards Jesus, it's the encouragement of a brother or a sister that's just what God uses to light them back up. And, And I think all of us know that when somebody else enjoys something that you're enjoying, your joy in that is multiplied and increased, is it not? It's why you've got to tell people about the TV show you're watching and the movie you just watched or a new hobby you've picked up because it's not enough for you to enjoy it. Your joy is increased when they enjoy it with you. And the same thing is true here. And so, and so who can you get together with this week to encourage in the gospel and talk about what God is doing in your life? Talk about the glories of the ways that God has saved you. Who can you talk about these truths with uh, in the church this week. And second, another way we can grow in praising God's grace is through missions and evangelism, sharing the gospel with those who have not yet heard the name of Jesus, who have not yet believed in the gospel. The truths of election and predestination are actually a fuel for missions and evangelism because we go out with the gospel in the knowledge, not that God might save some people if we 
share the message well enough, and if they are smart enough to believe in it, we go out with the confidence that God will save people when we share the gospel with them. In Acts chapter 18, Paul's discouraged about his work uh, in a city where he's not seeing much fruit, and God comes to him in a dream, and he says, Paul, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. I have many in this city who are my people. What God means there is that there are many in that city who he has chosen and predestined for salvation, who have not yet received salvation, who have not yet believed in Jesus, but who will believe in Jesus and will come to salvation when Paul preaches the gospel to them. And the same thing is true here. There are people in our city, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, not just that God might save, but that God will save when you share the gospel with them. God will accomplish the work of salvation through the preaching and sharing of the gospel. And we just get the joy of stepping into that and being obedient and watching God at work. And then finally, Paul in this passage gives us a really good, uh, just simple test of how we know uh, whether or not we're growing in Jesus. You know you are growing in Jesus when God and His grace are becoming beautiful and praiseworthy to you instead of just useful to you. When you find yourself just unprompted throughout the day praising God for His grace towards you, how He's loved you and the ways He's worked to save you, when you see the grace of God beginning to rewire the loves of your hearts, that you start to love and treasure God and His grace more than the things you used to love and treasure, really, you know you're growing when more and more you start to live as the child of God that you already are through Jesus. And this is the grace that God has given us, and, and, the more, and if that doesn't describe you, if that doesn't describe your life, and use these truths in Ephesians 1, like meditate on them. Use them like logs in a fire that you just keep stacking on the fire to, to make that fire blaze up again in your heart. Pray these truths into your heart because the more you'll do that, the more Paul's song of praise will become your song of praise. The more you'll find yourself praising God for his glorious grace. Let me pray that we would. God, thank you for your word and for the beauties and riches of salvation. Thank you that you haven't just provided for us in Jesus. You haven't um, just saved us by the, the, the skin of our neck in Jesus. You have lavished grace upon us in Jesus. God, would you give us the grace to believe it? Would you please give us the grace to believe that that salvation is your work, that, that if we believe in you, if we trust in you, it's because of what you did, not because of what we did. God, would you use these truths in our hearts and in our lives to, to stir us up towards a deeper trust in you and a greater praise towards you? Would you help us to praise you for your glorious grace? God, thank you for how good you've been to us in Jesus. I pray that it would change really everything about our lives, that this would change the way we see ourselves, this would change the way we go about throughout our day, this would change the way that we live. Would you do that in our hearts and in our minds? Would you help us to do that even now as we respond? Would you stir us up with the glory of your grace? I pray that you would. In your name, amen.